0: Today on Pence Exchange, the economic performance of Yugoslavia socialism, a peculiar experiment of labor-managed firms, trade openness and decentralized governance. Welcome to PEN's Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today, we will be joined by Leonard Kukic, he is an assistant professor in the Department of Economic History at Carlos III University in Madrid, Spain. Born in Croatia, Leonard received his bachelor's degree in Economics from the University of Utrecht and his PhD in Economic History from the London School of Economics. His research interests lie at the intersection of economic history, political economy, and economic growth and development. He's particularly interested in studying the economic performance and ethnic conflict in former Yugoslavia. Welcome, Leonard.
1: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: The Balkans have been the border zone of religious and political conflicts for centuries, being the frontier between East and West, where Catholicism, Orthodoxy, and Islam have coexisted, where the Habsburg, Austrians, and the Ottomans limited. Out of World War II, a socialist state was born under the leadership of Joseph Tito. It has been described as an alternative type of socialism compared to that of the USSR, deviating from a firm conception of central planning. The Yugoslavian state collapsed in the 1990s, but we are still debating how successful the experiment was, both in terms of economic performance and on its capability of unifying the region. Today, Leonard Kukic will talk to us about it. Leonard before we dwell on the details of socialism within Yugoslavia, I would like to start by asking you a general question about the historical context of the region. Could you tell us a little bit about how the Yugoslavian state came to exist in the very first place?
1: Well, it came to be by historical accident, and this is pretty much how it finished. I mean, it came about by historical accident brought by World War I and the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire, which completely dominated this region until the you know mid-nineteenth century, and then with the end of World War One, the collapse of these two empires, you know, the South Slavs under the Habsburg rule united with the newly merged kingdoms of Serbia and Montenegro to form the new common state of Yugoslavia, right? So the initial impulse was sort of purely accidental, let's put it that way, right? Because there's no way in any situation and under any certain scenario that in the you know, continuing existence of these two empires that Yugoslavia would have emerged on the world map, right? However, the idea of Yugoslavia was a much older idea stemming from the first half of the 19th century, much older idea, which was you know, part of this global movement towards the creation of modern nations, including you know, the German nation, the Italian nation, and so on and so forth. And Yugoslavia was one of those newly minted nations, at least at an imaginative level, because it didn't exist yet. And, I mean, the history of the Yugoslav national idea is, I think, reasonably interesting, right? Because it went completely parallel. It developed completely parallel to the development of national identities, like Croatia national identity, like Serbia national identity, right? And in a way, the Yugoslav national idea was propagated simultaneously with the other national identities like Croatian, Serbian, frequently by the same people, right? Frequently by the same people. And in many ways, the Yugoslav national idea was always in a way in competition with, let's say, the other South Slavic ideas, the more specific ones, like Croatian national identity, like Serbian national identity, like Slovenian one, right? So the idea was always there, but the idea of South Slavic unity, the South Slavic community was more of a cultural idea. You know, the major proponents of this idea as in the intellectual figures, right, never really thought that the idea of Yugoslavia's political community would emerge. However, it emerged with the collapse of these two empires and then the whole thing started, right? I mean, the actual creation of Yugoslavia in 1918 was, was a pretty messed up process that then shaped you know, the development experience of these South Slavs, the newly merged South Slavs in the 1920s and the 1930s, but also in post-war period after the 1950s. Because, I mean, these ideas of national unity were soon confronted with the very strong cultural, economic, uh, religious differences between these various communities that formed the new country. And, of course, this pre-war utopian ideals of national unity were soon confronted with these very messy differences, economic, cultural, historical ones, between these various communities that merged to form a new country, right? And... From the very instigation of the country, and it's impossible to understand the economic history of the place without understanding its political history, is that there was a conflict between the proponents of a centralized, highly unified country and the proponents of a more decentralized country, right? Proponents of a more centralized country were in a way, unsurprisingly, the Serbs. As the largest ethnic group composing the country, the proponents of a more decentralized country were the non Serbs, primarily Croats, as the largest um, ethnic group after the Serbs, right? And then these political differences between the proponents of a centralized country on the one hand, proponents of a decentralized country on the other hand, soon merged into ethnic conflict, right? Political conflict soon merged into ethnic conflict, which then, of course, skyrocketed in World War Two, with the little help of the Germans and the Italians, which added up to this, you know, cocktail of uh, high differences, right? And then socialist Yugoslavia emerged, socialist Yugoslavia, I mean, here it is very important to have in mind, and this largely explains sort of the, you know, the uniqueness of the Yugoslav social experiment, if you can call it that way, is that Tito, leader of the yugoslav partisan movement and the partisan army in general i mean they had a very large initial support in the population right and they were legitimized by the fight against the axis powers in world war ii right so it's important to have in mind when it comes to yugoslavia that the communist i mean the communist party or the socialist movement you know, it was backed to a large extent by popular support. It wasn't simply installed to power by uh, you know, the Red Army as it marched through Eastern Europe, like for example, in Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and so on and so forth, right? And this sort of popular support then allowed the new socialist government to eventually start experimenting, moving further away from the Soviet. Stalinistic type of socialism that the majority of, um, I would say, even highly educated people nowadays associate socialism with. But, of course, as there are many capitalist systems out there, so there are many socialist systems out there.
0: At the end, then, it was socialism that solved all the pre-existing conflict within Yugoslavia?
1: I mean, yes and no. I mean... in. After World War II, I mean, the main sort of uh, myth of national unity, if you can call it that way, was this anti-fascist struggle, right? Which was uh, the thing that, in a way, united all ethnicities to a large extent against the you know, fascist occupiers, right? But then this was sort of also the Achilles heel of Yugoslavia, right? Because World War II in Yugoslavia was not simply a war of occupation by the Nazis, although it was that, right? It was also a brutal civil war, right? Between these various ethnicities, right? So if you try to base this, you know, if you try to base national identity of New Yugoslavia, like the socialists tried to do on anti-fascist struggle, well, then this ran into this uncomfortable truth that World War II was actually a brutal ethnic conflict. Right? And it's in a way, it kind of contained the seeds of its own destruction as the idea of national unity. I mean, if if you try to base the legitimacy of your regime on an anti-fascist struggle, well, this runs against this, that, well, World War II in Yugoslavia was a brutal ethnic conflict, civil war, right? And in generally speaking, I mean, if this does not necessarily hold only for Yugoslavia, although Yugoslavia here is really an exception, whereby, you know, World War II destruction if you know World War II was a war of destruction in the West, I mean, in Eastern Europe, it was really a war of annihilation, right? And uh, Yugoslavia sort of comes as a prime example of that, whereby in Yugoslavia, about 6% of the overall population died in World War II. And then, of course, this shaped the development of the socialist system, the economy, and then the collapse of the country in the 1990s, whereby these old conflicts, from World War II reemerged.
0: Now that you talk about socialism, one of the key things that economic historians talk about Yugoslavia as it's, its prime difference is that it was different to that of the USSR. But before we go into the details of that, I would like to ask you a more general, broader question about what is the meaning of socialism Or how can we differentiate that of the USSR compared to that of Yugoslavia? Because socialism is kind of a murky word. It, I would say, technically means central planning within economic production, but Yugoslavia was different. So what would you say is socialism? What would constitute a socialist country?
1: This is this is an excellent question I think and as to any excellent question there's no good answer to it <laughs> I can only give a vague undefined answer and I think you know uh, in a way you know this kind of boils down to you know what is prettiness <laughs> to an extent you know how do you define let's say a beautiful person you know well difficult to describe but you know when you see it right but it's kind of it's kind of me being cynical me being cynical because In Eastern Europe you have this culture of suspicion, and in me this is reflected through cynicism. But to be less cynical about it, I would say I mean the most common definition of socialism, at least among social scientists, is about you know who owns the property rights or rather capital. Right? And who makes decisions, who makes the production decisions. And of course, in a socialist system, who owns the property rights is the state or the white society. And the decisions, the production decisions are made by the center. Right, And of course, right. if you define socialism that way, then of course, it is even difficult to say that Soviet Union was a socialist country. Because of course, we now know, especially after the archives were opened... Or at least let's say western researchers know that now right because in eastern europe this the debate was always a little bit different than in the west that of course you know the decisions weren't necessarily made by you know some kind of central some kind of committee up there and on top of everything is you know, of course decisions were made through horizontal relationships between the firms and property rights well i mean yes on paper there were owned by the state or the white society, but, I mean, the fact that they were owned by the managers, right? And they did have a large amount of power independent from the center, right? So this definition of socialism then, of course, runs into difficult problems when you try to implement it, even in, let's say, a country which nobody would deny <laughs> was a socialist country. Well, okay, maybe some people would deny it <laughs> that it was a socialist country, but not many would, right? And then, of course, I mean, if, if you take that definition of socialism and apply it to, let's say, countries that nobody or well, majority of people wouldn't consider a socialist like France, Germany, United Kingdom. Well, of course, these countries in the 1950s, I mean, from today's perspective, can largely be perceived as, you know, at least significantly with some kind of significant elements of um, socialist economy, because basically all major industries were owned by the state. I mean, Prices as a coordinating mechanism of decisions were heavily regulated, controlled, and so on and so forth. Right. So I think you know. I think this is a very important question that you asked. But myself, I never wanted to deal with it too much. Although I understand why many people would be highly interested in that, because you know this this kind of stems from this. Uh, you know, socialist calculation debate, right? Uh, I mean, Hayek and Mises on one side versus Oscar Lange on the other side as is kind of the main proponents of this debate, you know, whether socialism is a better system than capitalism in terms of efficiency, maximizing output, whatnot. I mean, this debate, although interesting, was, you know, extremely theoretical, right? I mean, it could could never have been applied to you know, any socialist country in practice, because, I mean, they talked about this idealized system of capitalism and idealized system of socialism on the other side, which never existed in practice, right? And then, if you want to take that further, I mean, the main problem kind (laughs) of, the main problem can be pinpointed, of course, to Marx, right? Which wrote, of course, you know, I mean, especially the communist manifesto. I mean, it's just a beautiful, like, uh, written pamphlet. I mean, it's just so exciting to read it, Right. I mean, capital is much more (laughs) difficult stuff to read or impossible, right? Mm, But, I mean, he never, of course, gave any sort of blueprint of what a socialist society or economy should look like. I mean, his work is a criticism of capitalist society, but does not provide a blueprint, right? So, when capital, I mean, when socialism emerged, these Russian peasants some intellectuals, mostly Jewish ones in 1918, basically had to deal with nothing <laughs> and figure out what to do. And what they did was they basically just applied this war economy of World War I and continued it. Right? Continued it into the 1920s, then Stalin took that to the extreme from the early 1930s onwards.
0: Okay, so just let us keep it simple and talk a little bit about socialism within Yugoslavia in applied terms. So one thing that you emphasize is this crucial aspect that differentiates Yugoslavia with respect to the USSR, which is that it's managed through labor-managed firms? So, how does that work? Could you dwell a little bit on that?
1: Labor-managed firms were, I mean, they were they were developed in the late 1940s and the late early 1950s. Sorry, by Tito and Edvard Kardelj, who was the main ideologist of the Yugoslav League of Communists, as they were called, it was basically a reflection, well, not a reflection, it was a sort of a knee, knee reaction against conflict with Stalin in 1948, right? So there was a big conflict between Tito and Stalin in 1948, and to distance themselves from the Soviet Union and its uh, centralized brand of socialism, Tito and the communist elite of Yugoslavia embarked, on a unique trajectory towards capitalism marked by these labor-managed firms, right? And what they were is, in a way, self-explanatory because labor, at least on paper, owned and hired capital rather than, let's say, in a capitalist society where capital hires and owns labor. The idea was that in a labor-managed society, labor would hire capital
0: so basically it's like a union of workers deciding what when and how to produce right
1: exactly exactly i mean the main the main sort of distinctive point between you know labor managed firm and let's say capitalist firm and let's say classical socialist firms is that labor managed firms were maximizing income right and they were maximizing essentially that meant wages of the workers rather than let's say profits like what capitalist firms do or rather than let's say output as, let's say, a Soviet type of a firm would do, right? And of course, this created many different outcomes as opposed to standard socialist Soviet type firms or standard capitalist profit maximizing firms, right? So that was that was, at least on paper, what distinguished language managed firms, I mean, in reality, what that meant is that, for example, you had this constant wage inflation, in Yugoslavia, whereby wages were typically beefed up above productivity levels, and then this might have created some distortions in the economy. But of course, I mean, you could think about also strengths and weaknesses of this type of companies. I mean, the major strength in terms of, let's say, promoting economic growth or efficiency of these companies is of course, I mean, workers control the company, right? And by that, I mean, they have a stake. They have a stake in the output and the profits of the companies of course they at least theoretically speaking should be more motivated more intrinsically incentivized to care about the company exert more effort try to work harder and try to work smarter as well right but of course it also created many inefficiency right which then sparked a huge amount of literature whether these labor managed firms worked in reality as much as it was suggested they would as in by theorists suggested then i would say this literature is largely inconclusive right largely inconclusive but i mean there's no doubt that they had some sort of macroeconomic consequences right and some of the stuff i am arguing in my work without necessarily strong evidence (laughs) is that you know if socialist economies, and in this case, Yugoslavia was characterized by, let's say, some sort of fundamental problems that retarded its economic growth rate. Well, then these fundamental problems can be associated to labor-managed firms, because once they were essentially given full autonomy, at least for a little window of time, around the late 60s and the early 1970s, you basically see that Wages have exploded relative to productivity and also unemployment has exploded, right? They're restricting labor entry into the existing firms in order to capture a larger share of the wage bill and to beef up their wages. So, yeah, exactly. As you mentioned, this basically then, revol- I mean, the clearest comparison point, labor-managed economy is like a giant trade union economy in a way, right, with all the advantages and disadvantages that can be managed, at least when it comes to macroeconomic implications.
0: When you look into the microeconomic aspect that you just referred, would you define Yugoslavia as an industrialized nation where basically every man beyond the age of 18 had the right to work and actually work? Or it was more like a union of workers that basically gained rents at the expense of others that basically remain unemployed?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, Yugoslavia was also reasonably unique among other Eastern European or socialist countries in general in the sense that unemployment existed in an open way, right? Unemployment existed in an open way, and this is largely thought to be the consequence of labor-managed firms who were restricting new labor entry into existing bills in order to beef up the wages of the existing workforce, right? And then in order to deal with this problem, the Yugoslav authorities in the 1960s basically opened up the borders of Yugoslavia. And then in the 60s and the 70s, about 10% of the labor force, for example, went to primarily Germany to work, All right. So this sort of marks a clear mm, distinction to, let's say, other socialist economies, among other things, is that you had open unemployment, and then this created many macroeconomic implications, also political implications, because the Yugoslav authorities were actually very keen, in order to get rid of this potential unemployment and, you know, the anger that might stem from it.
0: And do you see any regional difference in terms of industrialization? Previously, we thought about the importance of ethnicities. So in this time, do you see differences in terms of industrialization and economic performance patterns between, say, Croatia, Serbia, Slovenia, and so on?
1: Exactly. So there were there were huge regional differences in developmental trajectories. So basically, the northwest of the country, the former parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, like Slovenia and modern-day Croatia, as opposed to the southeast of the country, particularly, for example, Kosovo, Macedonia, Bosnia, I mean, you see stark economic differences level, I mean, differences in economic levels so that, for example, Kosovo or other Slovenia, which is the r- richest region of Yugoslavia in the aftermath of World War II, World War II was about four times as rich as Kosovo, the poorest region of Yugoslavia. And then by the late 1980s, this difference increased to a factor of eight, right? So Slovenia for being four times as rich as Kosovo ended up being eight times as rich as Kosovo, right? And this would be something equivalent to having a region like the United Kingdom and the Democratic Republic of Congo in the same country, right? So so these economic differences were absolutely stark. And this was, or at least this is the argument I'm trying to make, presumably labor-managed firms had a role to play in that, right? Presumably they had a role to play because, I mean, labor-managed firms, I mean, basically what this implies is that you do need to have some sort of educated workforce who can make rational decisions about production, investment, output, marketing, innovation, whatnot, right? And, of course, there were stark also human capital differences between these regions, right, whereby... For example, in the aftermath of World War I, I mean, more than 90% of the Kosovo population was illiterate, right? I mean, we're talking here, <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, pre-modern development levels, right? Whereby in Slovenia, for example, the whole population was literate, right? And these initial conditions presumably interacted with the operation of labor managed firms in the sense that I argue that labor managed firms could have been more suitable Let's say for the factor endowments, for the initial level of human capital of more developed regions like Slovenia and Croatia versus the less developed regions like Kosovo, Macedonia, uh, Montenegro, and so on and so forth. Right?
0: Was there not a mechanism for regional redistribution of rents between the different zones? You would think that a socialist state would have the capability of doing so. So we talk about Joseph Tito, just putting him back into the picture. How did he solve all these kind of problems?
1: I mean, how? The, I mean, it was it was it was a complex set of bargaining between the various regions and the ethnicities that composed it. So I mean, at the political level, Socialist Yugoslavia was created as a sort of an antipod towards the Kingdom of Yugoslavia, whereby in Kingdom of Yugoslavia, it was highly centralized. It was largely perceived by the non-Serbs as an extension of the pre-World War I Serbian state. So it was perceived as Greater Serbia, essentially, right? And then as a reflection, as a you know, knee-jerk reaction against that, socialist Yugoslavia was constructed as a polar opposite to that, right? Whereby each region essentially was granted... Mm, equal rights, equal political rights, so that each region could, well, not necessarily veto the other regions, but mm, equalize political power between the various parts of the country, right? So essentially, in Yugoslavia, all decisions were made at a very local and regional level, and Tito himself, right, he was mostly an, an arbiter. Right, he was sort of playing with the regional interests, trying to reach a compromise. So he wasn't in any way, you know, sort of a dictator like Stalin, who just okay, this is a decision, this has to go to the bottom. Right? No, I mean, this was a complex set of bargaining between regional elites with the center and center with the regional elites in order to achieve whatever political or economic outcome, right? And this is why labor-managed firms were then established as a reflection of that. They were established in order to bring political economic power to the very local level In precisely in order to avoid possible tensions at a higher level between the regions. So let's then put economic decision power at a very local
0: level. So you could characterize the relationship as an unstable equilibrium between the different ethnicities that live in these different regions and the socialist state under the leadership of Joseph Tito. And also between the different, also the rest of the world, which, as you previously said, also participated kind of as a escape valve for all the political and economic process that were happening within Yugoslavia. Would you say that Joseph Tito's death in the 80s Kind of precipitated the collapse of the House of Cards? Or would you say that some other aspects actually were more relevant in terms of the structure of the state itself?
1: I mean that's a good question. I mean this is always, you know, uh sort of history, you know, great man history, and usually is a great man, right, in history. I mean it's 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 an excellent question, to which I also don't have an answer. I mean, was it untenable after the death of Tito? Well, yes. Yes, because the economy was in state of disaster, right? But ultimately, I would think that Yugoslavia collapsed not because of the death of Tito, who was unable to unify the country anymore. I mean, who was a unifying symbol of Yugoslavia in itself, but mostly because of the complete collapse of the economy in the 1980s right so in the absence of that and you know in the absence of Tito i mean i think well i don't know what would have happened but i wouldn't i wouldn't you know sort of pinpoint the roots of the solution of yugoslavia to the death of Tito i mean in this case i would really pinpoint it to the economy right and here i mean when it comes to the economy i mean there's this I think large misconception largely derived from sort of exploring the Soviet Union, right? Whereby that the slowdown or the retardation of the economic performance of the socialist economies was sort of a very long and drawn-out process whereby these economies were slowing down gradually in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, right? And this was the reflection of the underlying inefficiency of socialism vis-a-vis capitalism, right? Maybe. Maybe for the case of Soviet Union, yes, right? But for the case of Eastern Europe, I mean, the story is much more different, right? And especially for the story of Yugoslavia, whereby this country had extremely high... Economic growth rates in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s in this period of Europe's golden age, which, I mean, all economic historians are aware of, the extremely high levels of economic growth rate, even given its level of development, right? And the only country in the world which had higher, obviously higher economic growth rates from the 50s and the late 1970s, for example, was Japan right? I mean, this. so Yugoslavia had this labor productivity growth rates of about 5-6% a year for 30 years, right? For 30 years. However, then in 1979, you know, from rates of 5-6% at a reasonably stable rate, I mean, this fell to zero, right? This fell to zero, and this was a major, I mean, this was a major economic shock that then corresponded also to the death of Tito, right? But ultimately, right, this economic shock, whereby, you know, at the late 70s and the early 1980s, I mean, real incomes have fallen by 30% in a span of two or three years. I mean, this, <laughs> this was the proper shock, right?
0: What would you attribute to the falling in the growth rates in Yugoslavia? Given that it's more attuned to the world's economy compared to the other socialist states, maybe the reasons are intertwined, but what are the deeper reasons behind it?
1: So, sort of the standard view, the standard view at least in the 1980s and the 1990s was, and this was well expressed, I mean, Paul Krugman expressed this standard view pretty nicely because you can, I mean, he, he writes well whatever you think about the content of what he writes, but he writes well, and he wrote this pamphlet in 1994, in 1995, Foreign Affairs. Where he said that basically, you know, it's no surprise that Soviet Union collapsed. It was all about diminishing returns. And you know, this is this is this is not a mystery at all, right? It collapsed because it was simply dumping ever larger inputs to economic growth, it was just expanding capital, expanding labor. But then, of course, any economic growth theory beginning with Solo would tell you that I mean you can build only so much roads, only so much factories, only so much railroads before this brings diminishing returns, right? And given all these distortions. Whereby the socialist system was plagued by um, poor incentives for innovation, poor incentives for efficient resource allocation. This couldn't counteract this diminishing returns, and then you see this collapse. Right. So there were these intrinsic problems, and socialist systems weren't able to counteract diminishing returns on capital. So this is a very standard, very standard viewpoint. Towards why and how socialist economies failed, right? The problem is that perhaps this holds for the Soviet Union. A Soviet Union is a very special case, abundant with natural resources, for example. It doesn't square nicely with the experience of the other socialist economies in Eastern Europe, right? Because it is not only Yugoslavia, and Yugoslavia was completely part of the convergence club in the 50s and the 60s and 70s, converging very strongly to Western European income levels, right? And the Western European income levels were a fast-moving target because they were also experiencing supercharged economic growth, right? So Yugoslavia here was sort of a stark performer, but even countries like Poland, Czech Republic, Hungary, they kept up the pace with Western European income levels, right? And I think this is a fairly good result, right? Because the rest of the world, the rest of the world, including, for example, South America, was actually falling behind Western European income levels. South Asia was falling further behind. China, East Asia was falling further behind, excluding Taiwan and the East Asian growth targets, right? All of the world was falling behind Western European income levels, while actually Eastern European socialist countries at least managed to cap pace, right? They didn't necessarily converge to the West European income levels, but they kept pace, right? And this also then already sort of, you know... Mm, should plant some kind of seed of doubt towards this classical view of socialist systems as being basically kind of an exercise in futility. Okay, maybe, maybe compared to Germany and France in the 50s and 60s, but you know, this is several percentage points of the global population. I mean, the real counterfactual, especially for a country like Soviet Union, is not Germany, but it's probably Brazil, right? And Brazil was falling further behind. Right, Germany, France, in the 50s and the 60s. Right. Having said that, right, these countries were keeping pace with Western European countries until the late 70s, and then the second oil shock came. Right, the second oil shock came, which basically increased the cost of borrowing. It led to huge inflationary pressures, and just like the case was in South America. This led to a huge balance of payment crisis. IMF was called in some countries like Poland and Yugoslavia, which then implied huge austerity measures. For example, in Yugoslavia, I mentioned that already real incomes were cut by 30%. Investment was cut by half. So investment from about 30% of GDP fell to about 15% of GDP. And then you see economic growth you know, from increasing At a reasonably stable rate for about 5 6% productivity gains on an average basis for 30% going into zero or negative, right? So this kind of shift in performance of Eastern Europe, excluding Soviet Union, was not a sort of a slow and very gradual process. It was extremely sharp and sudden. Right. It was extremely sharp and sudden. And then, of course, this sort of calls into question whether the stories about the inefficiency of socialism, this poor incentives for innovation. I mean, how important were they? Right. And at least this is what I'm trying to emphasize in my research, but also other more recent work has also tried to emphasize like that by Tamaš Vonyo and Alex Hyder, the story of Eastern Europe is a little bit more complicated than what we initially thought, right? A little bit more complicated in the sense that it is not about, you know, sort of the uniqueness of the socialist system, although that played a role, right? It's probably the exposure of the system, at least partially, right, to global economic movements, and then you can draw clear parallels between the experience eastern european countries in the 1980s with that for example of south america right where this balance of payment crisis austerity measures led to economic recession catastrophic falls in output essentially revolutions regime changes democracies autocracies changing rapidly and so on and so forth right so clear parallels for example to the experience of eastern european countries right and this is At least what I attempted to do, at least kind of, you know, re-emphasize this more of an international angle of the crisis of socialism of the 1980s, if you can call it that way.
0: To summarize then, would you attribute the fall of Yugoslavia in the 1990s to a combination of the world shock that was global and affected all the regions across the world? but also to basically destructure the weaknesses in the governing system of Yugoslavia that were derived to the political economy incentives between the different regions and the ethnicities that created these unions, these labor-managed firms that kind of prioritize the creation of capital or the building of capital compared to the hiring of people that created unemployment and kind of exacerbated the regional differences.
1: Definitely. So, I mean, I think the root cause cause was economic, right? Although people might disagree with that because of this catastrophic period of the 1980s, at least in places like Yugoslavia, but also Poland, right? Mm, Having said that, I think there's this huge misconception at least among the liberals both in the european sense of the word and the american sense of the word that socialism fell in eastern europe because of this cry for freedom and democracy and what not no i mean it fell because people had to wait in lines to buy bananas or chocolate right however right these economic problems then basically fueled nationalist problems right or in a way You know, the collapse of socialism in Europe was really, I mean, this was really a nationalist revolution, right, because not necessarily the case so much in Yugoslavia, but in places like Poland in particular, right, I mean, socialism was frequently perceived as foreign occupation by the Soviets, right, which to an extent is true. Right. And in that sense, the fall of socialism or this movement against socialism was not some kind of cry for political freedoms, although of course that played a large role. Or it wasn't necessarily even a huge cry for economic freedom, it was really a backlash against you know foreign occupation. But that of course interacted with this you know severe economic contraction of the nineteen eighties, at least in a place like Yugoslavia.
0: Well, thank you very much for being with us, Leonardo. I really appreciated having this interesting discussion with you. Thank you. Economic systems in real life are complex and varied. Their peculiarities depend very much on the context that spurred them. Yugoslavia's socialism is a great example, given its peculiarities. Unlike a stereotypical USSR socialism, Yugoslavia required decentralized means of political control to assert its authority. That is how the idea of economic decentralization through labor-managed firms arose. However, through time, the system exacerbated regional inequality and made the coalition untenable, making Yugoslavia prone to fragmentation. Economic and political systems are always intertwined. One cannot understand the one without the other. This has been Penn's Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based, and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga, and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at Penn Stay tuned and see you next time.